Welcome to the Bedpost Podcast. I, of course, am your host, Erin Pym. And what I like to do here on the pod is bring fun and sexy guests into the studio to have in-depth conversations surrounding sex and sexuality. And today, I'm very excited. I'm really looking forward to this conversation, actually. I have someone who is a sex and culture critic. Please welcome to the mic, everybody, Ella Dawson. Hello. Thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. It's my pleasure. You know what? Um, I, I booked you because I was like wanting to reach out to you. And then you put a post that was like, hey, I like doing podcasts, like reach out to me. And I was like, oh, hooray. So perfect, perfect timing. Yeah, no, really. I was actually just on like a distance date with someone. And for some reason, I brought up brought up an article that I had read of yours. And I was like, hmm, I should book her on the podcast oh. like like a couple days beforehand. Oh, that makes me so happy. I love hearing, especially when people talk about my stuff on dates. I'm like, that is the coolest compliment to know that it comes up in that context. <laughs> Isn't it though? Yeah. That If somebody told me about that, I'd be like, I was almost like flexing that I knew this cool writer. You know what I mean? <laughs> I was like trying to show off to this new person. Like... <laughs> clout ella dawson that's wild <laughs> i'm sitting here in my like target drawstring pajamas <laughs> oh tell me about it like covid success is so weird <laughs> yes yes everything is a social construct and i have no idea what's real anymore let's yep. talk about stuff <laughs> <laughs> but get me on your podcast let's chat yeah so thank you so much and i love that that tactic i'm like because i i've been doing the podcast for a while but i don't I guess over the years, I've been on other people's pods a lot, but I'd like to do more. So I love that you just tweeted like, hey, have me on your pod. Like, I, I'm going to do that, I think. Yeah, it's funny. I've been invited onto some really random shows that I didn't even know existed. And it's such a delight to see what everybody's quietly working away on that I had no idea was there. A few weeks ago, I went on a podcast and just talked about my favorite, like, childhood toys and memories for like a 90s nostalgia podcast it was great it was really wonderful so yeah I I recommend it and people always get shy too about reaching out to strangers to invite them to do things so it's sometimes a good sometimes it's smart to just be like hey green light go ahead (laughs) invite me me to do weird stuff yeah yeah and I mean I totally felt that because that was totally the thing maybe I would have not reached out to you you know, for being like, oh, she's like intimidating. Not that you're, you're come off as intimidating, <laughs> but you're um, just the like professional way that you present online. I'm like, oh, thank you. I don't know, you know, so. So Thanks. congrats on that. And, and here we are. We did it. We made it happen. Yay. Um, one of your uh, recent articles, I, I have kind of like three topics in mind that I want to do talk to you about. Um, one for sure is your pinned tweet, which is talking about mm-hmm. being bi and biphobia and yeah. the hilarious Catherine Hahn video. <laughs> oh my God. I love that video so much. If you know what we're talking about, you know what we're talking about. Yeah, and if you don't look it up before we continue, because I literally just watched it and it filled me with such 
such queer joy. Absolutely. It's for those of you who haven't seen it, it's this clip that someone made of it's a montage of Catherine Hahn staring at Rachel Weiss during a Hollywood roundtable. And she's just f fixated on her and infatuated. And I don't know Catherine Hahn's sexuality. We could be projecting a lot of queer feelings, but the intense longing and admiration and awe on her face in every clip is just like, if you're a queer person and have experienced <laughs> queer longing, it's like, oh, that's it. That's that's the energy. <laughs> yeah. Put my fucking finger on that. Like the way she's like touching her chair. Like I know. She's just getting as close as possible to her. And like, it's so funny. It's literally like no one else is in the room. It's so funny. <laughs> yeah. You feel like you're, you feel like you're um, it, like eavesdropping on this very intense <sighs> intimate sexual tension yeah it's it's absolutely wild oh my god so okay tell me a little bit about why maybe I don't know did that video kind of spur you to write this article or how did you tie in the video to this article yeah so I I saw the the clip going around it circulates like once every few years basically yeah, yeah. and I I think this was the first time I'd seen it though and I pulled up a google doc and just wrote about the way that I recognized Catherine Hahn's energy <laughs> in that clip and how much it reminded me of my own awe for women, for certain women. I just really related to it. So I kind of stream of consciousness wrote about that, the way that I recognized myself in that. And I didn't intend it to be a larger piece about biphobia. I basically, mm -hmm. I set it aside for a few weeks and kept coming back to it because I liked the writing in that intro. And eventually it evolved into a longer piece about having crushes and how how I as a bi person experience attraction differently to people of different genders. And I think that's why it took me so long to recognize that I was queer and to feel confident in, in claiming that label for myself. And around the same time that the Catherine Hahn clip was going around on Twitter, there was this discourse happening in the queer community because someone had referred to a bi woman as I think theoretically bisexual or something condescending like that um right. that just got under my skin and and we see that all the time with bi people of of us being conceptually bisexual or or theoretically bisexual as opposed to this person is bi and that's we don't need to prove it in any way mm -hmm. so I wound up having those two those two trending Twitter topics meld together into my in my mind as um so as part perfectly. of the same yeah as part of the same inner struggle I'd had around surround uh, around identifying as bi and it wound up wound up really resonating I was shocked by how popular it was because to mm -hmm. me it was this kind of niche essay about queer culture and identity and so many queer people particularly I think cis women who are kind of shy bisexuals yeah. responded to it and was like this is exactly how I experience it this is why it's been so hard for me to articulate my attraction to women and it was it was so validating and, and honestly really fun to, to share that piece I 100% agree I mean what what was the phrase you used warm warm nervousness or something like yeah, that yeah warm, warm fear I think warm fear yeah oh my god <laughs> What a great, what a great juxtaposition of two words. Like, yeah, my editor was like, I think warm is the wrong word. It's like, no, like, you don't, no. you don't get it. It is. <laughs> that's what it is. I'm petrified, but in a pleasant way. <laughs> <laughs> oh 
exactly yeah oh man yeah i mean i i definitely have maybe that's why what uh, about all your writing kind of made me want to reach out to you and like feel connected to you in a way because that's that's pretty much exactly my story as well like I'm by, you know, and pan as well, like I all identify as either, but I've always been a little apprehensive to like embrace the word queer, to use the word queer for myself. And, you know, I've mostly been in like hetero romantic relationships, even though I've had a lot of partners of all different genders, like sexual partners of all different genders. But, you know, I did things like never actually coming out to anyone because I didn't think it was something worth coming out about. You know, not thinking I was queer enough to use that label. Like, that's all stuff that I still carry with me today. And I'm fucking almost 40. So, yeah. Absolutely. I I read that article and was like, yes, that. Yeah, I'm so glad that it resonated. And it's, I, similarly, I've only been, I've only, I say I've only been in long-term relationships with men. But as I mentioned in the essay, one of my exes came out as trans and that kind of, that blew up my whole conception of self because I was like, oh, I, I dated a woman for a very long time. I just wasn't aware. Yeah. Um, but I've also I've also only, except for that, dated cisgender men. And I associate my attraction to women and non-binary people with longing <laughs> and unrequited <laughs> crutches. And, like, that's valid, too. I, I experience queer desire. It doesn't matter what your actions or your romantic history is in terms of I, like we don't we don't measure straightness by how many people have you slept with who were the opposite gender yeah. it's identity is so much about it's it's internal it's your feelings and you don't have to achieve anything or mark things off a checklist in order to be allowed to claim a label um mm-hmm. and i think that hits by people and pan people particularly hard because we we have all we have all of the options and some of them are much easier and socially acceptable to make and then you wind up having your sexuality erased so i have a lot of complicated feelings about it and yeah, i'm same, happy to have same. a venue for it <laughs> yeah it's so funny how we do that to ourselves like even recently like oh uh, speaking of podcasts actually um an old college friend of mine approached me and he has a new podcast called you made me queer and he's like i'd love for you to be on it and ooh. i was like ooh yeah exactly i was like Ooh, um, yes. However, I'm like, how I'm already like trying to think of how I'm going to navigate this conversation. You know what I mean? But at the same time, like I literally had a pussy in my face like the other day. Like, so I don't know what it is about this disconnect of me not being able to be like, hey, I'm a queer person. And like, you know, it's my choice to use that word or not use that word or whatever word I want to use. But you know what I mean? Me just being like, ooh, that's kind of a big ask, a big ask to come on a podcast with that word. And yet I like have a, a female sexual partner that I, I see often. <laughs> Absolutely. It's, it's like, just dude, like we are cultured to, you know, erase ourselves. <laughs> like Yeah. And to feel like we don't deserve to take up space in certain Oh my god! Environments, and, and I mean, not yeah. taking up space is just a general <laughs> problem I have. Like, not even yes. as a part of my queerness, just in every, literally every other aspect of my life. So, absolutely makes sense. And I feel me. like this always. A lot of these feelings bubble up for people around Pride Month because it's mm. how can I go to the march? Can I go to the party? Like, <laughs> am I am I welcome? It's yeah. like a unique time of of queer panic. I feel like for a lot of us. <laughs> queer panic yeah (laughs) totally and it's this thing of that you mentioned like action versus 
like what like intention like I'm not sure what the other word is but it's like it's not about the action it's not about who you are sleeping with it's about who you desire to sleep with or who you are attracted to right so it's like to measure it on well how many have I had equal amount of female or non-binary trans partners as opposed to cis male partners and can I say bye if it's like kind of all evening out it's obviously not about that at all yeah there's no winning math yeah there you go yeah (laughs) there's no there's no equation yes yeah (laughs) that helps you decide if you belong but that's an interesting thing with like also being in a quote-unquote straight presenting like relationship yeah and then calling yourself queer or going to pride events or being on a podcast with queer in the title for instance you know what I mean like I'm married to a man I'm married to a cis man and I'm dating another cis man it's like it's just funny that after all this time all of this where does this come from this bi erasure like why what where did this narrative start and why did we where did we start hearing it that it's affected us so much yeah, I really don't know. Like, bi, bi people have been part of the queer community for generations and have have been part of, like, I'm, I'm, I live in New York City, and so I care a lot about Stonewall and the history of queer community here, and bi people have always been a part of that. And mm-hmm. I'm not sure, I think it comes from a lot of different places. I certainly have experienced bi phobia and bi erasure from within the queer community, but I, I also have internalized it a lot from pop culture from the way that family and and my community growing up thought about queerness I when I was a teenager growing up in the 2000s the the joke was always that if you identify as bi it's just like a it's a stop on your way to identifying as gay yeah and so that was that was the message that I was bombarded with by my peers even in my super queer theater department at my high school like that was the way that we understood sexuality and identity and so I didn't think bi-ness was a real thing or an option and it took me a really long time to learn more about bisexuality as an identity and then to understand that yes I could claim it for myself but it's just it's in the air and I think that it's getting better we have a lot more bi characters in in pop culture we have Mm -hmm. it's a lot easier to find each other online and to have these conversations but it is it's it's very strange Um, and in working on this essay I talked to my ex Daisy for a long time who who I who I referenced in the piece about it and we were talking about how much how much is bi erasure something you internalize and then see around you Um, because Mm -hmm. I think for me I was projecting my own insecurities about identifying as bi on the people around me and whether or not I'd be welcome when in reality most of my friends and family and my community were like that's cool you don't have to you don't have to show me your 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 gold stars you don't have to prove who you are to claim this identity it was a fear that I had absorbed and then when I actually came out as bi people were like that's that's cool we kind of had a hunch yeah (laughs) it's fine (laughs) we know (laughs) you can come to the party (laughs) obvi Ella (laughs) <laughs> you're not subtle yeah <laughs> not subtly by no one of those shy buys no <laughs> yeah and it's funny like my uh I had um I can't remember which birthday it is because time does not make sense but nope. a few years ago I celebrated a birthday at the local lesbian bar near my office and um all of my female friends came many of whom are queer and my boyfriend was the only um 
man at the party for a long time. And it was really funny to be in this this deliberately queer space celebrating my queerness and all my queer friends and also my relationship yeah (laughs) and my boyfriend brought a cake and and Mm. was totally welcome in the space as far as I can tell um and it was really delightful and it was this wonderful moment and no one asked him to leave like it's the the community itself is is so accepting usually and inviting and and it was this moment it was a breakthrough moment for me of realizing like I'm I'm happy with my identity and and I it was I felt like I had had um, unlocked something in myself that felt really nice. That's amazing. Yeah, I can have you can have both. You can have yeah. your boyfriend and you can have your queer identity. Yeah. Yeah, totally. Oh, I love that. Love that for you. Um, thank you. <laughs> another. <laughs> no, thank you. Thank you for that article. I mean, amazing, right? Um, another article that has been, I feel like on your feet a lot recently, this one resonated with me because I just had a conversation with my friend, Natalie Norman, who's a comedian. And she had this thing of like, like guys that she's sleeping with misinterpreting her being nice to them with wanting a relationship with them. And she's like, no, I don't want a relationship with you. I just care about you. Like, I just, I just, you're in my life. So I'm gonna care about you. Otherwise, why are you in my life? Like, so this this thing of like, casual sex for Natalie, and for me as well, when I was talking about it with her, like, you know, you like the people. (laughs) And that's fine. That doesn't mean that you want to date them. (laughs) And like, a lot of times the sex can be is is better, you know, just gonna say that like the sex can be better when you're doing it with someone you like. <laughs> what a novel what hot a take novel for us idea. to have. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> but she's like, oh, God, people get confused about the fact that I'm, like, nice to them. And I'll, like, you know, send them an article if I, like, I, I actually sent her the, that article that you wrote. You know what I mean? Like, stuff like that. It's like, yeah. I'm going to send you something if I think you would like it. Like, and that doesn't mean I want to date you. It just means... I'm nice and I like you. Yeah, we have this very immature binary way of thinking when it comes to casual sex, I feel like. And certainly not everyone has that. I think a lot of people have realized it's a ridiculous way to think of sex. Um, Mm -hmm. But I certainly bought into it when I was younger and it's taken a lot of deprogramming, I feel like, to understand this. But we think of sex as it's casual and meaningless and fairly anonymous and it's just physical. And then we have on the other side partnered sex or sex that matters, sex with care, sex that's intimate, um, usually associated with relationships, and that there's nothing in the middle, and Mm -hmm. that you either like the person and there's a commitment implied, or it's, it's shallow and you don't care about that person. And it's so, it's not how humans work, it's not how desire works, it's not how feelings work, and it is possible to have this other third option where you like the person that you're sleeping with you respect them and you treat them as a human even though you don't want to date them Mm -hmm. or marry them or or have it be more than a friendship I somebody replied to that essay I wrote being like there's a reason we call it friends with benefits like there's a there's a friendship there too Mm -hmm. um and I, I've had a, a few different types of friends with benefits or um, extended casual sex relationships. And 
it is so funny that the the expectation that if you try to interact with people beyond just the sex itself you're you're catching feelings and there's some kind of oh god we must take a few steps back and it's possible to just like someone and want to have sex with them and not expect more than that yeah. it's not it's not a dangerous trap we're not trying to trap anyone into anything more than that particularly if you're a woman um who's expressing affection and respect for a man there's there's this whole myth of women catching feelings and trapping men into monogamy it's ridiculous i could rant about this for a long time <laughs> yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah i know what you mean i've had yeah i i mean i think us as as women um as afab people i think i think we have a lot of experience with this right like and I've had good experiences with friends with benefit type situations. And I've had ones that are exactly that, where it's like, ooh, they feel like I like them too much. So they have to cut it off. You know yes. what I mean? And it's like, why though? Why are, why are men, first of all? But, but also, yes. yeah, I've had, I've had like one, I, I, one that's just coming to the top of my brain that like, it was such a lovely, satisfying friend with benefits type situation and it was a lovely couple who are just like the loveliest people and they actually really really helped me through a difficult part in my life at that time like I I um I was married but I didn't have any other like romantic partners in my life I just had them as friends who you know I went over every couple weeks and, and fucked one of them you know what I mean but honestly they carried me through like a really fucking hard part of my life. Like, so to say, like, so yes, it was casual sexually, but like, were they hugely important to me? Not only at that time, but now, like I literally thanked them last week. I sent them a text. I, I'm not sleeping with them anymore, but sent them a text last week to be like, oh my God, thank you. Like if I haven't said thank you enough at, by now, thank you one more time. Absolutely. Relationships don't actually fit these neat little easily labeled boxes. Like yeah. people can be casual sexual partners, but emotionally be incredibly important to you in other ways. Mm -hmm. And I have like I've had a number of, of sexual partners who the sex was not actually that important in the long run, but there's an, an emotional connection there that isn't even necessarily romantic. And thank goodness that type of relationship and friendship we were both capable of that and didn't see it as a threat and didn't worry about oh my god are we actually this other more socially acceptable script should we be dating mm -hmm. uh, I'm so grateful that I've been able to have those relationships that don't that aren't easily defined um, but I think that a lot of us panic when we see a relationship that doesn't fit the script that we expect relationships to fit into whether that's friend or love interest or casual partner it can things don't have to be one specific way and I think at the core of having any healthy relationship no matter what type of relationship it is you have to be willing to talk to each other about what am I actually interested in and what am I capable of and what do I want from you and also recognize that those things can change as well you can you can wind up realizing that you want to be closer to this person or that, hey, maybe this isn't working out in this direction. Let's renegotiate and talk about it. I think we're just, we're, we're so bad at doing that. Oh my <laughs> and God. It's, it's something that I, yes, I it's can so say yes. hard. Oh, yeah. yeah. And like, 
I I haven't been in a non-monogamous relationship in a very long time. Um, and I look back at when I was attempting to be non-monogamous and I'm like, oh, God, I did not do that right. I was oh, terrible I'm currently bad at it. Yeah. I'll... It's really hard. <laughs> it is. But... I'm forever bad oh. at it, I think, no matter what, how much therapy Absolutely. I go to and, like, how many workshops I take. <laughs> yeah, it requires so much vulnerability and self-awareness and willingness to communicate openly with whoever you're speaking to and to have that offered back as well mm-hmm. um but it's something i i read a book a while ago called uh i think it's many loves that explored polyamory and the way that every relationship is different even if you've been in a series of monogamous relationships they're not go- all going to look the same mm-hmm. and i think r- realizing that was a huge part of me becoming a better more mature person because we expect to fit these scripts on top of every single relationship. And that's just, it's not how it works. That's not how humans relate and connect to each other. Yeah. I think, and I think it's about really listening to your, like listening to your instincts, you know, like really checking in with yourself about how you feel, because I think we know, you know, you know, when you want to spend more time someone or with someone or be closer to someone or be more intimate or, want just want more of them I think we know when we feel that way or when we just feel desire for a person when we feel like the Catherine Hahn thing happening right when you're just drawn to someone and I think it's really important to just obviously have the communication with the other person if you're capable of it (laughs) if you're that lucky enough to be really capable of doing that but like having those same conversations with yourself about it like okay what do I really what am I really feeling here? What am I attracted to? What's working? What's not working? What would I like more of? What, you know, could fall away and I'd be fine with it. Those kinds of self-reflective moments about our relationships. Absolutely. And like I talk a big game, but I'm also learning just as much as everyone else is. It is very hard. It's a lifelong thing I'm going to point practice. that out publicly as much as I possibly can, because I think I also do kind of present in a way that's like an authority on something. And I'm like, no, 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 no. Nope. <laughs> Please do Absolutely not assume not. that. Yeah. Um, no, I'm not a role model. I'm like a facilitator and like... <laughs> You know, I'm a guide. I, like, I can yeah. be a guide. I, uh... I like to say that I'm I'm opening a conversation. There you go. Yeah, <laughs> I, I I have a platform. You know that I'm gonna yes. you know connect people. Come and... learn and talk about this with me as yes. I also learn oh. how to do these things. Oh my god, so true. Like I I taught um I teach workshops like online like kink workshops and like that's my main thing that I'm like okay my voice is for sure like yeah my mic's on and yours are muted but like my voice is for sure not the most important in the room let's like try to make this more of as much as a conversation as possible same with interviewing I mean I want to hear what you, what guests have to say like I'm I'm actively like taking notes like personal notes for myself I'm like I, th- I don't need to talk you talk by all means you talk you know what I mean absolutely yeah I think it's important it's important for self-growth and keeps you humble (laughs) oh 100 percent, absolutely i every once in a while an ex will reach out to me and be like hey you wrote this article about this but when we were dating you were terrible at that and i'm like i i know first of all (laughs) i know wow first of all i know an attack but it's also one of those moments of like yeah you're right and i'm sorry i had to learn those lessons by treating you terribly yeah i'm sorry i'm working on it (laughs) totally yeah i mean honestly Ella, 
<laughs> when I think about the imposter syndrome, I feel sometimes about being in a public platform and like talking and teaching people yeah. about stuff like sex relationships kink. I'm like, oh my God, somebody just gag me. Um, <laughs> somebody just put a yeah. ball gag. PSA, your your hosts and writers are not necessarily experts either. We are we are accumulating as much knowledge as we can, sometimes from our own mistakes. Definitely. And yeah, I, I actually had someone in a class bring that up. It was a wellness domination class and they were like, Well, how do you feel about, you know, when you're the Dom in the dynamic and you're not you know, your mental health is suffering or be you're battling mm-hmm. some internal struggle and you're not perfect, you know? And it's like, well, yeah, to keep in mind that you don't have to be the perfect role model to help someone along their mental health journey. You know what I mean? You can still, you have a lot to offer um, from your own experience with mental health struggles. Like, like in my, in my opinion, that would make you more worthy of helping this person if you are battling it at the same time. And at the same time, like, this is another thing that I, I'm a switch, so I, um, talk about this a lot it's like you know you are also healing yourself in this dynamic as well like all the shit you're you know you're passing on to a sub it's like a lot of that is stuff you need to hear so allow yourself to like really be actively doing both at the same time like doming that person doming yourself doing your own wellness <laughs> domination with yourself I'm a hundred percent not kidding like no totally be the dom you need. <laughs> Be the dom. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and like I I ended up like taking this class in a whole different way at one point I was talking about like self-domination, like all this stuff it's like mm. that I'm talking about in this class. Um you don't need a partner to do it. Like you can do like uh, there's a section on like behavior modification, you know, and and like you can be doing this for yourself 100%. You don't need a partner to do it. So, once I kind of realized that, I was like, "Oh my god." Or, you know, it can look any, again, with like, it doesn't have to look any one way. It's like, if you're a dom and you need help to do this for yourself, okay, tell your sub to like come up with, you know, all these schedules and reminders and rewards and stuff like this. Um, Like, you know, if you need help dominating yourself and you're the dom, that can be a thing too. You know, a lot of times subs are very organized. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and they want to help you and they want to, you know, contribute and they want to please you and serve you. Fucking get them to figure it out. <laughs> to help you with it. <laughs> Let's take a moment to talk about our lovely sponsors, shall we? First of all, Oasis Aqua Lounge is a water-themed sex club located right here in Toronto at 231 Mutual Street. Oasis is inclusive of all genders and orientations and is shame-free when it comes to pleasure and play. Check them out at their website, oasisaqualounge.com. Unicorn Collaborators is the local leather business of two queer unicorns. They specialize in luxurious and colorful harnesses for all body types, and even craft non-conventional ones for your thigh, fist, or foot. Check them out at their Etsy shop under Unicorn Collaborators. Lovecrafters Toys is a non-gendered fantasy sex toy line that makes weird and wonderful dildos in the shape of tentacles, unicorn horns, mermaid tails, and more. Their high-quality silicone is hand-poured right here in Toronto. Check out their Etsy shop at Lovecrafters Toys. 
ComeAsYouAre.com is a trans-owned, trans-operated sex shop that also happens to be feminist and anti-capitalist. They carry only the best sex toys and want to give you the best price possible. Next time, use the coupon code BEDPOST, that's B-E-D-P-O-S-T, when checking out at ComeAsYouAre.com. Okay, so Ella, for the second part of the pod, this is a huge topic that I for sure, for sure, for sure want to talk on the podcast about it. And I mean, you do it within your boundaries in what way you would like to broach the topic of herpes? Because one thing I'm super aware of is like, I would never want to like, you know, drag out any trauma you've had surrounding it or PTSD. Like I do not want to trigger you by talking about herpes because I know a lot of the feelings like that can be tied into to having herpes, right? So I'm just here to give people information, let people hear your story in whatever way you want to broach this, essentially. I Yeah, so basically the nutshell fun version is that uh, a few years ago I went viral when I, I think I was 22, which is wild to think about because I was not emotionally mature enough to handle being an internet celebrity for a while, but I wrote an article about why I enjoyed disclosing my herpes status to people. Um, And it it went viral online and I very much by accident became like the face of herpes on the internet for a long time. Yeah. Um, And that is just a strange, that's a strange calling to have. But (laughs) when I was diagnosed with herpes in college, um, I was so shocked, A, to realize that herpes is extremely common and that many of the people I knew had herpes, um, including people in my own family, but I had never once had a conversation about herpes that wasn't just full of offensive jokes and stereotypes. And as like fear mongering. Yeah. Yeah. uh, And as a baby feminist who was super interested in sexuality, it was this odd moment of, ooh, now I'm a rebel with a cause and I'm going to destigmatize herpes and teach people why it's not a big deal and, and where it actually comes from and how it's transmitted and the psychological impact of this powerful stigma And the stereotypes that we associate with herpes, that the people who get herpes are dishonest or promiscuous in scarecrows, in scare quotes, I mean, not scarecrows. Um, Is there something about herpes I don't know? Scarecrows. Okay, let's talk. uh, Scare quotes. Um, But yeah, the people with herpes are horrible people who have some, have done something to deserve the STI. Yes. And it, it took me a long time to, to... Uh, process that and realize that it was absolute bullshit Um, and eventually I became this writer who was talking about herpes all the time Um, and I didn't for for many many years I didn't talk about how I'd gotten herpes and how traumatic it was because uh, it's very difficult a to prove how you get herpes definitely Um, herpes is it's so common and it has so many forms that a lot of us can have herpes and never display symptoms. Um, you can transmit herpes without showing symptoms yourself. Uh, it's difficult to test for in the sense that there are a lot of false positives and negatives and getting a more um, a more trustworthy test can be more expensive and not always covered by health insurance. Uh, doctors are recommended not to test you for herpes unless you're showing symptoms because the stigma is so severe compared to how minimal its impact is on your health. It's a really weird virus. Yeah. Um, like I've had people, I've had somebody be like, oh, I'm worried about um, giving my partner herpes. And the doctor was like, what's more likely than you're giving them herpes 
is that they already have it from another partner. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And it's, yeah, it's ridiculous. And it's, it's so, and so many people just have no idea that yes. they Most might people. have it. Most people, yeah. I would say. Yeah. Most people. And, and that they might have already been exposed to it. And it's just, there's so much, there's so much baggage and misunderstanding around herpes. Um, so I was never, I never felt comfortable talking about how I got herpes because, I'll never know beyond a reasonable doubt, but mm -hmm. I also happened to be in a pretty emotionally abusive relationship when I was diagnosed. Mm -hmm. um, and my partner who also tested positive was very slut shaming and, um, and focused on punishing me for giving him herpes when we don't necessarily know if that's the direction the virus went in. Mm -hmm. um, but for many, many years, I just, I felt a lot of shame around it. I was afraid of upsetting him, even though we haven't been in contact for a long time. And only recently in the last few months did I feel comfortable really unpacking that, that chapter of the story that was kind of the last chapter I had never shared. Yeah. Um, so that's, that's up on my Patreon. Well, congrats. <laughs> no, because that, that's you. massive because, yeah, I'm also aware that, like, it can take years to actually feel emotionally okay to move forward in that way with like either telling your story or coming out in a public way stuff like that it can literally take years because the stigma is that fucking bad like Absolutely. It's, like it's definitely a hundred percent like 10 times over the worst part of having herpes like literally people that have chronic yeast infections chronic utis definitely like are having a worse time physically than people that have herpes Totally. And yeah. in my case, it was there were a few different stigmas layered on top of each other. There was the stigma of the STI and the stigma of having been in an, in an emotionally abusive relationship right. and the stigma right. of both of us having mental health issues that complicated our relationship. So there were a lot of layers to unpack. Um, and it's it's funny, like I it took me so long to be willing and brave enough to tell that story publicly, um, even though I'd been talking about bits and pieces of it for so long. And I, I genuinely do feel like the pandemic helped because it shook me out of my routine and it made me realize, like, why am I actually afraid to tell this story? Like, I'm not, I, he's not in my life anymore. Mm -hmm. None of the people who would be upset by me telling this story are in my life anymore. We're all so separate because of COVID. Like, what's the worst that can actually happen if I talk about this? And nothing did happen in the best way and yeah. it was it actually was a huge I do feel like it healed a part of myself that I've been struggling with um yeah and it's been it's just been fun too it's been fun to or fun is probably the wrong word it's been very <laughs> satisfying <laughs> to hear how many folks have had similar experiences and to talk about the connection between STIs and abuse because it's it's something that very few people talk about or even research and yeah. it's it's a big problem yeah, the thing you specifically mentioned in that article, or maybe this was just like something that really stuck out to me was the fact that you, you know, now you don't think you will ever have another partner, sexual partner in your life. So it's that, you know, that new dynamic of like, oh, I need to make this work or stay, you know, even though intellectually, I might know it's abusive, and it's not working anymore. And I want out. It's like, you just don't you feel like you don't have any options. Yeah. yeah. When you're diagnosed with an STI, you feel like I'm never going to be desirable again. Yes. I'll be lucky if anybody chooses me. Um, I will always pose a risk to the people I'm having sex with. Yeah. You really feel like you're, you're bringing a lot of baggage to any relationship. 
and eventually you realize that that's all bunk and that yeah. you're wonderful and that an STI is not a big deal. But particularly in the beginning when you're struggling with that diagnosis, mm. you're very vulnerable to being in an unhealthy relationship, either yes. staying in one or entering one because you don't have the confidence to feel like you deserve to be treated well. And if you run across someone who is ignorant or genuinely malicious, they can use that against you Definitely. as a way to have you settle for behavior that you normally wouldn't tolerate. And in my case, I happened to be with someone who was really cruel and uh, unfaithful and a misogynist and just like not a kind person. Um, and also a young a young person who, who did not have the maturity and grace that hopefully yeah, he just is going a, to. Yeah, just a young, stupid person. Yeah, yeah exactly. Sure. Yeah. And so... I, I was in an unhealthy relationship that I don't know if I would have been in otherwise if I hadn't gotten herpes um, yeah. and yeah. that I or that I would have left a lot sooner than I did. But it's something that I think I wish that when people were diagnosed with herpes and other STIs, they got more support and resources. And I, I really wish there were like a brochure that says, like, <laughs> you deserve to be treated well by your partners, even though you have this STI, like, don't lower your standards. Yeah. Please. Oh my God. <laughs> like that is my only wish that sex education somehow, like in, in any context of sex education, that it weaves in, um, relationships, you know, the, it tell, then it adds that layer on top of like, of all sexual education, like what, what, uh, uh, like just information surrounding like healthy relationships surrounding whatever totally. topic you happen to be talking on. Right. Yeah. Our hassle free, hassle free, <laughs> clinic here in Toronto. Um, if you get a herpes diagnosis, then they'll give you like, an I think it's an hour long, might be a half hour, but they give you like with a counselor, um, wow. Yeah. So you can bring your partner in or whomever to support you or to learn with you. And they'll just, it's like maybe a week in between they can fit you in, you know, or a few days to That's a week so in between. Cool. It's for free because we're, you know, because Canada. And mm. yeah, the fucking lucky I know. And you can, in that time, you know, be writing down all your questions and bring a fucking list in. And have a super knowledgeable, you know, shame-free, judgment-free space to ask all of the questions that you need That's to. That's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty Ooh. cool. Yeah. Well, something that also, um, I'm a polyamorous person, so something that um, about desirability with like dating going forward after a diagnosis that really stuck out to me is like, because in the polyamorous community, it's like, you are not only asking one person to accept that you have herpes and to um, like it's accepting the risk, quote unquote, even though it's really not that much of a risk. You're asking their whole polycule yeah, who have nothing to gain really other than that person having happiness of sleeping with a new person. Like, so it's a lot, I think it's a lot more difficult when suddenly you have a whole group weighing in on whether or not that's cool and I mean depending on how your polyamory works like because you know sometimes there's veto power in the group sometimes there's compromise in the group and sometimes it's kind of more relationship anarchy where it's like you know different rules for different people and okay nobody wants me to do this but I'm gonna do this and mm. then I need to reconsider my relationships with everyone else you know what I mean so it's like it just makes it a lot more complicated to disclose and then to go forward into a relationship that makes sense there's a ton of different dynamics at play yeah like very complicated yeah but um 
maybe we can talk about like let's talk about the conversation about like disclosing to like a potential new partner do you have anything any insights you can offer as far as that goes like managing that conversation and even rejection potentially surrounding that conversation Sure. I think learning how to disclose your STI status is it's very frightening. Yes. Yeah. And it's it scares the crap out of people when they're first thinking about it. And there are a lot of rookie mistakes that folks make because they are so scared and insecure. Yeah. Uh, I try to remind people that the much the more you build the conversation up into this big scary deal and this serious conversation we have to have the more you're freaking out the person you're speaking to and right. the more you are actually feeding into the stigma itself. The fear, um, yeah. Oh my God, that's so yes, true. Because it's, it's contagious, <laughs> the, the fear of that. And yeah. so I try to tell people like, you don't need to tell your per your person, like, I have something really important to tell you. I'm so sorry we have to have this conversation. Like, you don't need to pump it up as this big, scary moment in your relationship because right. the person you're speaking to is going to mirror that energy, and you're actually setting yourself up for rejection when you do that. So chill out. <laughs> Relax. Um, and I try to say, too, like, approach it as more of a collaborative conversation about – the fact that you're interested in this person and you're interested in them sexually and that's exciting and it can be a conversation of hey I really like you I want us to do x together um, and let's talk about our STI statuses and how we're going to have safer sex and what this Love looks that. like you should know that I have herpes or HPV or whatever it might be that's what that that's this is what that means for me in terms of how I can have sex safely mm. these are the options we have in or terms safer. of yeah, safer yeah. sex in terms of um, mitigating and lowering that risk together. Mm -hmm. um, you may have these STIs already and not know. So maybe we should talk about testing just to know where we both stand. Like if you approach it as a conversation you're having together, mm -hmm. then it's it's less about you sharing your baggage and more about you saying, hey, I'm, I like you. Let's invest in this in this way and let's talk about this together. So those are some of my pointers. Um, definitely don't apologize. A lot of people say, I'm so sorry to tell you this, or I'm so sorry that this is part of my life. You have nothing to apologize for. An STI is not a shameful thing. It's not a failure. You haven't betrayed this person. You haven't misled them. Mm -hmm. You're just telling them a thing about you that they should know. So don't, don't apologize. Um, I tend to be... I'm a very out there person and I actually haven't needed to disclose my status in a very long time because if anybody Googles me, they already they know. know. Yeah. Exactly. That's kind of um, helpful, I feel like. <laughs> honestly, like it's it's a really good way to weed out people who, who would not interest not be interested in the full Elitos in reality. Yeah, a good screening. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Yes. So I have not had a disclosure conversation in quite some time, but um, before I became weirdly internet famous for this, I like to get it out of the way early. <laughs> I know. I feel like every once in a while I say a sentence. I say a sentence that's not weird for me, and then the other person hears it, and I'm like, "Oh, yeah, my life." Oh is yeah, no, strange. that is yeah. <laughs> Sorry. <go. laughs> but uh, but yeah, before I before this chapter of my life, um, mm -hmm. I would try to get it out of the way early, just because I. I didn't want it to become a deal breaker later on. I yes. and I didn't want to hype it up into this big scary thing. Um, I've told a few different stories about very early disclosures in relationships that are. It feels like a sitcom. Like I feel like I should eventually write 
a sitcom or a rom-com about having herpes. Um, I would watch there it. Because there are all these, there's so many weird, anyway. Um, so many weird <laughs> moments. Yeah, weird yeah, glimpses of like, yeah. Exactly. And people are really funny. Like people don't, re- people don't respond in the way that you expect. Not everyone is horrified. Some people are just very confused um, or <laughs> what don't is the care confu- at all. What does the confused well, person say? <laughs> I'm curious. Well, some people are like, wait, you have herpes? Like how? you don't fit the stereotype of what I expected. And there's this moment of cognitive dissonance on the face where they're like, wait, what? Like (laughs) you, um, and it's not insulting. It's just like, I don't under, this does not compute because I have absorbed this myth. Um, but yeah. And then there's some people who this, like, this is a story I try to tell for folks who are worried about disclosing. I've disclosed to people who went, Oh, that's, I don't care. I have Mm -hmm. my ex-girlfriend had herpes or, I'm a medical student. I know that herpes doesn't matter. Like, have you been freaking out about telling me this? I do not care. I'm not worried. And that conversation has happened for me quite a few times as well. So stop imagining the worst case scenario. (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to, easier said than done, obviously. But yeah, I I feel like that is where some of the successes lie. It's like if the person's already been with someone who has herpes, or you know that they already have a partner who has herpes, then you're like, ha ha. Golden. <laughs> Golden. Yes. Yeah. This will be automatically just so much fucking easier. Yeah. Yeah. I love that there's like a range of reactions. Like, <laughs> you're never going to get the reaction you expect. And right. sometimes it's a wonderful thing. Right. Yeah. Because people can surprise you, right? You might, you may be dreading, like you were saying, just like really worrying about having this conversation with the person. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I know how to deal with that. I've dealt with that before. And they're like, literally not a problem whatsoever and you're like oh my god why do I do this to myself like yeah why was I building this up in my head into this horrifying conversation when it Mm -hmm. really took 30 seconds and now we can move on to talk about something else yeah what a way it off but yeah I love how you brought up having like let's have this collaborative conversation about it I had um I've had a friend of mine who's a sex educator as well. She was on the podcast a while ago. Should have her back. Her name is Claire A.H. And her thing before you have, you know, intimate sexual contact with somebody is just to be like, do you have anything to disclose? Like, let's have a conversation. Like, do you have anything to disclose? I have this to disclose to you. Like, (laughs) you know what I mean? Yeah, it's like open floor. What open what should floor. I know going in? Yeah, because <laughs> to assume, like, so if you're the one that has herpes, to assume that it's just a one-way conversation, like it's a one-way thing that's happening. It's like, well, don't assume that because they might have, they probably have some shit to disclose to you too. And just to have that, that weight on you that you're the one that is, you know, is the burden, for instance, it's like, no, no, often if you like open up the floor, the other person probably has some shit to say as well. And they probably were not, you know, dreading it. 100%. I've disclosed something to someone and been really worried about it. And then had that person be like, oh, no, me too. And I'm like, when the fuck were you going to tell me? Like, were you going to not? Absolutely. <laughs> like, meanwhile, I'm like, you know, stressing about whatever. And then they're like, oh, yeah, me too. And I'm like, were you even going to tell me? Like... When was this going to come up? Yeah. yeah like. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I, I've come to thinking of disclosing your status or whatever it might be that you disclose. It's it's a vulnerable act, um, but it creates this vulnerable space where your partner can do the same thing. Mm-hmm. And I've found that when I've disclosed often, 
my partner will share something as well because now they feel safe to tell me whatever yeah, it yeah. is. Either and a past experience with something or yeah, yeah. something, right? And yeah. 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 True. Often it's often it's an experience of sexual violence or a trigger that they think I should know. Right, um, yeah. something that might come up during sex that I that they that they think I should keep in mind. Like yeah. it's very rarely a one sided conversation. And it's it's so satisfying when something that you were nervous to talk about winds up being an opportunity to get closer to this person, even mm -hmm. if it is a casual sex partner, um, because it's it's just it's, it just opens up this level of trust that can be really wonderful and rewarding. Um, yeah, you're probably not the only person bringing something to that encounter to the uh, table. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Pun not intended. <laughs> Yeah, no, I love I love coming into it like that. Because I feel like the stigma can be so, you know, it's the worst part of it, that you can feel like in my relationships, I have, I, I didn't make this up, my therapist did. But like, to have a bad partner complex, where you just always think you're the one that's fucking up, essentially, mm -hmm. you know, so having that opening disclosing conversation be a complete two-way street and it's not like I'm the one that has something to say I'm the one that needs to unload this you know baggage onto you it's like that kind of changes the whole framework yeah you're not the main character of the relationship mm -hmm. <laughs> there are two mm -hmm. people in the relationship Ooh, yeah that is that's that's a good quote that's a good pull quote <laughs> thank you I might write that down yeah yeah jot that down you, there's something there um, just before we go, uh, something else I read of yours that is related to this conversation, an article you wrote about like COVID, like talking about how having herpes prepared you for like this whole COVID conversation and dealing with COVID. Correct yeah. me if I'm kind of saying that incorrectly, but how it's related. Maybe we can talk for just the last couple minutes about that. Yeah. So in some ways, I'm very grateful that I got herpes because it taught me through, uh, it taught me the hard lesson that you are not the exception, particularly when it comes to science and biology. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah. it doesn't matter if you're the main character of your life, you still might get an STI or a virus. The viruses do not care who you are. They do not care how well you usually behave. They don't care how rich you are, what your politics are, where you live. A virus is a virus, and they are looking for... Um, a host to move into. And so I, I saw a lot of my friends really struggle with COVID because they were so used to thinking that they were invincible yeah. and thinking that viruses happen to other people. Yeah. And I had learned the hard way that a virus does not give a fuck and <laughs> you you are always at risk and you can behave well 99.9% .9 of the time. But anytime you take a risk, it's you're taking, you have the same odds. It doesn't, you don't get passes. You, you don't get free passes and a lot of people just I feel like a lot of people particularly people of privilege were just not prepared for the fact that they were not immune and they would not be the <laughs> exception mm -hmm. um, and so that's been that was like a weird head trip for me of I, I I learned that lesson and the other thing is I already when you have an STI particularly um, a stigmatized one you've already lived with the fear of your body posing a risk to the people that you love yeah and yeah. so it, the virus the early days of the pandemic really triggering for me and for a lot of folks with herpes because they tap on a lot of 
insecurities that we already live with about about that risk and feeling like we're contagion risk. Um, And we know a lot about asymptomatic viral transmission and a lot of these different keywords that were all in the headlines. So um, in the early days of the pandemic, my experience with herpes made the pandemic even scarier because I understood the risk and I, I had the frameworks to understand what was going on. But it also made me a lot safer in the way that I behaved and how seriously I took the virus because I understood like I'm, this could happen to anyone. And the best we can do is mitigate our risk. Um, and also not shame and judge people who are making different choices because shame is not an effective way to teach people to change their behavior either. Um, that's, that's like a larger, much larger conversation than what we can have in this space. But as a lot of folks education space no shame shame does not help anyone shame does not discourage behavior um it just creates more secrecy and yeah more, as someone that was grown up gr- grew up in a catholic school system it's a catholic yes i can <laughs> attest to that <laughs> very much but <sighs> I, Im- I imagine also you know having herpes having hpv having some sort of like chronic sti that you need to disclose like regularly it's preparing you for these conversations surrounding like okay who are you in contact with you know like the conversations of like just in the polyam community it's like okay Mm -hmm. how many people are you sleeping with and how many people are they sleeping with like just give me an idea here of like the bubble you know what I mean like you're already you already kind of um, have developed that those skills to have those conversations like just candidly um, yeah. Stuff like I, that. yeah, it's not been scary to me to talk about those things with friends and to say, like, I'd like to see you, but I just went on this vacation and like mm-hmm. we should talk about risk and, and things like that. And a lot of my friends and family have struggled with the idea that me not wanting to see you has nothing to do with how much I love you. It has everything to do with there's a biological risk <laughs> involved in all of our choices. Yeah. And maybe we wait a few weeks and that doesn't mean I don't trust you or I don't love you. It means that we could all be harboring an asymptomatic virus and we should be realistic about that this is not personal um and that's i i had a lot of that training already and it's yeah. been weird and it's been weird and strange and kind of nice to folk to think in that way um but frustrated with people who get really personally offended when i'm like i don't want to do that and it's not because i don't love you it's because you might have something and not know and that's not your fault and i'm not judging you by that it's just because we're in a pandemic yeah and I feel like the um I run in a lot of sex work circles like a lot of my friends are sex workers so I feel like the conversation of like concerning work like for instance Mm. like people who work are going in person to work and in contact with a lot of people those are conversations too of like just to give you an idea of how much risk you might be assuming in coming in contact with someone and no matter what kind of, you know, if it's sexual and we're talking about the STI thing or during COVID, it's like there, there are definitely parallel conversations um, surrounding STIs, like condom use, like PPE in in general, right? All of, yeah, it's like just so such a similar conversation that, that we've had had. And some people have clearly never had these conversations before. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you oh, know? Yeah. Like, I 100% am like, <laughs> oh, the people that are, like, not wanting to wear a mask for sure are trying to get that condom off, too, you know? Absolutely. It's, just, <laughs> it's a type of selfish thinking. It's the prioritization of your own comfort and your own and, – and, and imposing your own assessment of risk onto the people around you. Yeah. Uh, it's – very much an indiv- individualistic, selfish 
way to move through this world and to have a body and I yeah a lot of the people who are refusing to wear masks have definitely called me a slut and a failure of personal responsibility for having herpes and I'm like okay let's talk some more about personal responsibility buddy where's your mask (laughs) yeah where's your vaccine card like are you kidding me yeah Yeah. oh lord Ah. yeah I feel like we could have had a whole podcast on that, but okay. Oh, yeah. we should... Some other time. <laughs> Another time. I'll have to have you back sometime. Um, but please, Ella, before we go, uh, tell us where we can sign up for your new Patreon um, yeah. and all the other different ways we can give you money and follow you and read all your amazing oh, thank stuff. thank you. Yeah, so I have a Patreon community where I write about sexuality and mental health and intimacy and all that fun stuff. You can find it at patreon.com slash brosandprose um, because I write prose about bros. It's P-R-O-S-E. Um, and you can also find me on Twitter and Instagram at brosandprose as well. Or you can read my stuff for free at elladawson.com. Perfect. And for me, I'm at the Lady Pim one on Twitter. I'm the Lady Pim on Instagram, the Bedpost Podcast on Instagram. I have a YouTube page. I'm the Bedpost Sex Show. I have a Patreon. I'm the Bedpost Show. And last but not least, I always love to thank the lady that does my original music. She's fantastic. She just came out with a new single. Check it out. Um, it's called Gaslight. Stephanie Copeland. You can find out more about her. StephCopelandMusic.com. And last but not least, Ella, thank you for this amazing conversation. I'm so grateful to you. Thank you so much for having me. This was a pleasure. Honestly, thank you. And I hope everybody enjoyed it, learned a little something, uh, gained a little insight perhaps, and we'll see you next week talking with another fun and sexy guest here on the Bedpost Podcast. Bye, get fucked. Bye. This podcast has been brought to you by the Sonar Network. Hi, welcome to Finders Grievers, a happy-ish podcast about sad things. My name is Shohana Sharman. I'm a Bangladeshi Canadian writer, theater artist, and comedian. In 2017, I lost my mother to lung cancer. It was devastating. I felt lost and hopeless and alone. But the year I lost my mother, I learned just how alone I wasn't. Grief is one of the single most fundamental human experiences, and sharing and connecting with others who had been through it was healing for my soul. It's this connection that helped me find some lightness in it all. Finders Grievers is a podcast about the universally felt yet rarely discussed experience of grieving. Each week, I'll be sitting down with a guest to discuss love, loss, and everything in between. Sometimes we'll laugh, sometimes we'll even cry a little bit. Both are allowed. So, shall we find some grievers? Finders Grievers is coming to the Sonar Network on May 6th. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and join us, won't you?